good to see everyone. And it's definitely good to be seen by you. Nice to see you. Praise be to God. Some old school in the building. <laughs> Paul's thinking I came to the wrong place. <laughs> Amen. Um, we're going to be continuing in our series, Superman HD, Human Divine, as we look at Jesus Christ up close and personal. And um, as we come to our text today, we're in John chapter 13. Um, it, it caused me to think back to school days. Um, and with that in mind, I almost had a different title, I'll tell you in a minute. Um, there was an incident that happened when working in a, a local secondary school for some years um, that really, for me, kind of spoke of school days and um, just a kind of a common attitude that was had amongst young people. So, um, simple situation. We were in the, in the classroom. The pips had just gone for lunchtime. And um, the pips, you remember the pips? And one young man said to the other, bro, I beg you go into the canteen and bring me a hot dog and chips, please. Now, you can maybe imagine the response of the individual. It could have gone a few ways. On this particular occasion, he stood up, turned around, looked at him, and said, am I your send-out? <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. That was going to be my um, title, The Send-Out King. But I thought that, that might have got lost in a few people. No one likes to feel like a send-out, a servant. No one likes to feel used. Some of us growing up might have felt like that was the only purpose for having children. <laughs> Just to raise servants. As a child, you may have looked forward to that time when actually you would have children of your own. <laughs> Who you could then treat as servants just as you have been. And we have a, a natural aversion to this sense of being used by someone, if not abused by someone. It tends to go against the grain of our instinct. And um, as much as I, I didn't get to hear um, last week's message, Brother Rich T gave me a, a summary update, and um, he touched on the, on the whole fact of glory, um, God's glory versus human glory. And the reality is that we're all glory hunters. And so, whose glory are we seeking? As we look at this text today, we'll recognize that in the same way that love is that which characterizes Christian community, Servanthood is to be that which characterizes the Christian. Servanthood is to be that which characterizes the Christian. Is your life marked by an attitude of servanthood? Let's look at John chapter 13, verses 1 to 20, and we'll pray. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come 
to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, And put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Father God, we're astounded as we look at the text and we see him who made water, he who walked on water, now take that same water and wash the feet of his disciples. Lord God, you are awesome in power and majesty. You're awesome in wonder and might. And yet, Lord, you would condescend. As David said in the Psalms, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why would you even consider us? Why would you even bother? Such is the greatness of your love. We thank you, Lord God, for you are good. And our prayer is that, Lord, you would help us 
to submit, to surrender, to be like you. Speak to us through your word today, Lord. Challenge and change us. Conform us to your image and likeness that you would be glorified. Amen. So, as we arrive at chapter 13, in the grand span of the book of John, we enter into a new section and a new season, if you like. If the first 12 chapters were a bird's eye highlight reel of the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, we now zoom in to the last 24 hours. And so this is the, the, the last 24 hours. It's the feast, just before the feast of the Passover, we're told in verse 1. And Jesus knew that his hour had come. This is the same hour that he had been speaking of in chapter 2 and in chapter 7 and chapter 8, which at that time had not yet come. But now the hour has come. The final hour. And that word is a euphemism for the end of his and the, the end of his um, ministry on earth, the apex, the fulfillment of his mission was at hand, not speaking merely of a literal hour. And to get a sense of what that might feel like, I want you to think about the last big exam you had to take. Maybe for some of you, it, it was a recent June, July, uni, maybe a driving test type of examination, right? And the feeling of, of anticipation that you had as that moment drew closer and closer and closer to the point when you arrived at that moment and you were there in front of that test paper, sitting next to that examiner and thinking, okay, this is going to have an impact on my future. And in that moment, you try and establish a clarity of mind that's going to help you as you navigate yourself through that experience. Jesus' hour had come to depart out of the world. And he knew that that was by means of death. And in this moment, he doesn't just think about himself and what lies ahead of him, but he thinks about his disciples, his team, the guys that he picked and was soon to dispatch, send out bearing his name and his message. And so we see in this section that goes right through to chapter 17, the preparation of the disciples, the disciples now being personally prepared and readied for the Lord's departure. As we approach this final 24 hours, 
we see that Jesus approaches it confidently. So in the first three verses, we get a sense that Jesus knows who he is, where he's from, and what he is to do. And as you look at the verses 4 to to 11, we see Jesus perform an act, an act of washing the disciples' feet, which is so uncharacteristic, so unexpected. In fact, even by Peter's response, so unwelcomed, it was astounding. This act is the heart of our text. And the context is the the Last Supper. Now, for some of us, we've seen images like this being the the portrayal of the Last Supper. I wonder if we can dim these lights at this end a bit. See some of these pictures. If you just press and hold the middle one, bro, it would dim. Hold it. Yeah, there we go. Um, So this this kind of 16th century image of the Last Supper and them sitting upright around the table and halos. And this is very far removed from the reality of what the scene would have been like. Even if you um, try and go with the Afro version, And so, the, the, this is a, a, an Eastern Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox representation of the scene. It's interesting, throughout history, every civilization has endeavored to portray um, the person of God in a way that looks like them. I wonder if that's why there is no specific detail given of his appearance in Scripture that we might all relate. But even the Afro version doesn't actually... Um, accurately depict what this scene may be like. You see, as they reclined at supper, they literally reclined at supper. And um, what is maybe hard to see here is that this is actually a very low table, maybe six to eight inches off the floor. And the disciples are laying on their left side around the table with their feet extended behind them. Um, as they are spanned around the table. And so this is more commonly how they would have reclined at supper in first century Israel. Very different to the images that we see. And yet in this, Jesus approaches this moment with a purpose. to personally prepare his disciples for what is to come. Now, Jesus knew who he was. He was secure in his identity. He was secure enough to humble himself to the position of a servant, taking the posture of a servant. Jesus knew that He was from the Father. 
and that he was going back to the Father, verse 1. Jesus knew in verse 3 that the Father had given all things into his hands. He was approved by the Father. He was affirmed by the Father. He was equipped by the Father. He was endorsed by the Father. He knew that he had come from the Father and that he was going back to the Father. Humility often evades us and can be hard to find. And one of the reasons we can find it so challenging is because we feel that we have too much to lose. We can't bear to think that somebody's going to look at us as less than themselves. That we would be seen as lower, lesser, inferior. And so we grasp at status, we grasp for respect, and in doing so, completely counteract the attitude of humility. It takes one who is secure in their identity to be able to walk in humility. And even from the outset, as we see that Jesus is secure in his identity, we see reasons for us immediately to find security in our identity in Christ if we are his. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was going back to the Father, but he had loved his own who were in the world. And we see a contrast there between his own contrasted against the world. He loved his own who were in the world right to the very end. You see, the Lord recognizes, values, and cherishes his own. He loves his own with a love that is a sacrificial love. It is an unending love, even though it says here to the end, and some would say to the end of what? And there are debates amongst theologians about what does this mean to the end. At the very least, we know that it was to the bitter end. He was about to take to the cross. And at any given point, he could have said, all right, look, even as he, we see later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He could have just called it a day. And in doing so, forsaken the means by which that love would be realized most fully. He would have abandoned the mission and the means of demonstrating the love in the most clear and full way, being the giving of his own life. And so Jesus loves his people and has loved his people even to the bitter end. To the extent that it cost him his life. Knowing that we are loved provides security. Knowing that we are loved provides the strength to be humble. 
And there are many situations in life where we don't feel loved. And in that situation, we don't find it easy to be humble. And yet, I want to encourage you. In Christ, you are loved. And even if the person to whom you are to demonstrate humility doesn't show you love, it is not their love that is your ultimate security. It is God's love. Amen? And therefore, you don't have to respond, or maybe I should say you don't have to react to the lovelessness of another by now seeking to demand respect and affection. But actually, you can know that you are loved by God. Now, even amongst those that Jesus loved, we see it highlighted three times in this section that he even loved the unlovable. Verse 2, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. So Judas was there among them. Verse 10 and 11. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. Judas was there among them. Verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know who, I'm cho- who I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas the betrayer, the one who's to betray Jesus with a kiss. With such a pretense of love and affection. He himself was unlovable in many ways. He would commit the biggest betrayal of all time. And yet. Jesus loved his own. Judas was there for a purpose. This is being highlighted now by John as it becomes more clear later on. And yet even so, verse 4, Jesus takes off his outer garments, takes a towel, ties it around his waist, and begins to wash their feet. Now we appreciate that today um, clothing is somewhat of a status symbol or can be. If you wear certain clothes, certain brands, you're regarded in a certain way. Um, Yesterday I had to um, go up to Sloan Square to to get get something for my aunt. And um, I haven't been up there for a long time. I haven't been up there for a long time. I forgot where I was going, innit? I would have I fixed up myself and <laughs> dressed for the occasion. I had on my raggedy jeans, my Primark t-shirt. And I, I was walking around thinking, something's wrong with this picture. <laughs> This don't feel like Lewisham somehow. 
and everybody was, you know, I, I guess you would say casually dressed in the main, but their, their clothes were far from cheap. And there was a certain kind of, um, yeah, an air. Thank you, bro. Swagger, someone said. Someone might say hubris, a certain kind of level of pride with which they walked. <laughs> so I just um, walked with my head up and my shoulders back same way. <laughs> Clothes don't make if the manner. Amen. <laughs> and yet here we see Jesus take off his outer garment and in doing so, he immediately, visually, um, socially is adopting the status of a slave. You see, the household slave would walk around in their, um, what you would call undergarments. Undergarments don't mean underwear in the way that we understand it. So it would be like me taking off my cardigan and walking around with my T-shirt on. And my cardigan would be normal up and down attire. So Jesus has taken off his outer tunic. He's taken the towel and tied it around his waist, identifying with the lowest of household slaves. In fact, this rank of servant was the lowest rank in the household that all servants sought to try and um, rise up from at any point they found themselves in that position. So somebody came into the the household, they would become the the lowest rank, they would be the foot-washing servant. And you can imagine why that wasn't really a, a very desirable job, right? People walking up and down, open toe sandals, as they used to say in school, Jesus creepers. Maybe this is where we see the phrase coming from. Dusty streets, dirty streets, crusty feet. <laughs> the foot washing servant wasn't a desirable position, it was the least desirable of all positions. You know, the servant that helped. The children with their literacy was a, a much more highly regarded position. The one who helped with cooking and so on was a much more highly regarded. So it's not even just that Jesus took on the form of a servant, but he took on the form of the lowest of the low of all servants. And as he washes their feet, Peter challenges him. Lord, do you wash my feet? Notice he calls him Lord. You see, as Peter challenges Jesus, it wasn't merely a matter of shame or embarrassment on his own part. Ah, oh, Lord, you're going to see. Now, you know, I'm, I know if I said, all right, Brother Jason, just as you're going out the door, just bring in the bowls, bring, bring the water. Everybody just take off your shoes and so on. We're going to have some foot washing in here today. And let's have an object lesson, a real demonstration of what it means to wash feet. A lot of you are going to be thinking, I'm not taking off my shoes. You know what? Let me just pop out and um, wait until this bit's over. (laughs) Certain ladies thinking, boy, I haven't had a pedicure in a minute. Certain brothers thinking, I can't let nobody see this rough skin on my heel. 
I need a promise stone first. But Peter's objection wasn't one of mere personal embarrassment. It was embarrassment for Jesus. Lord, are you going to stoop so low as to wash dirty feet? You know what? I'm going to be the bigger man. I'm not going to let you do that to me. I'm going to show due recognition for who you are. And yet Jesus showed him, you don't understand what I'm doing now. Peter's like, you know what? Whether I understand now or later, you're never going to wash my feet. My feet? You? And it's beautiful that Peter had Jesus in high regard. In such high regard that it was unthinkable that Jesus would ever wash his feet. And the reality for many of us, we're very happy for Jesus to wash our feet. We're very happy. Lord, you know that job. Lord, you know that marriage. Lord, you know that money. Lord, you know that status. Whatever it is. We're happy for Jesus to be chief foot washer in our house. My kids, Lord, they just give me, Lord, will you sort them out? Do we really see the glory of the I am? Is he merely a genie to us? Or is he the great I am? And yet Jesus, he says, look, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now you notice he doesn't say in verse 8, if I do not wash your feet. He says, if I do not wash you. And then he goes on to elaborate, verse 10. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. You see, what Jesus was doing, it had multiple meanings in the moment, some of which would become more clear later on. What Jesus was doing was representative of the cleansing of sin. It was a representation of the cleansing of sin. But Jesus wouldn't allow it to be mistaken that mere water could wash away sin. Actually, what Jesus was doing was demonstrating the attitude of a servant that would lead to him being crucified and cleansing his people by his blood. I remember growing up in church and um, hearing a phrase that took me a bit of a while to really kind of understand. And in fact, later on in, in church life, I remember having a conversation with some friends and thinking, you know what, that, 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 that phrase is actually quite an awkward and difficult phrase, especially for people who don't know God. Now you're thinking, what phrase am I talking about? 
we would often hear, have you been cleansed in the blood of Jesus? Have you come to the altar? The altar, sorry. (laughs) And bathed in his blood. Now when you think about that, for someone who's not a Christian, that's quite a gory thought. Blood? Altar? Like, is this a church? Or is this witchcraft you're dealing with here? And as much as it's a very awkward image, the reality is, as Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so it's necessary that our sin be cleansed by Christ's blood. And when a person's sin has been cleansed by Christ's blood, we are regarded as having been made clean, as having been washed, having bathed in the provision of God that cleans sin. And yet, having been cleaned, having bathed in Christ's blood, and being made clean of our sin, Jesus is showing us that even so, as we go through life, we will sin. Our feet will get dirty as we make progress through life. We will fall and we will fail and we will stumble. And in washing their feet, Jesus is showing even for your, your, your sins in which you stumble, your sins in which you fail, your day-to-day sin, I've made provision. I myself wash your feet. Now I want to encourage you because I know I don't even have to ask. I don't have to take a survey. I don't need to call Gallup. I don't need a show of hands. I know that it is common to the Christian experience that we find ourselves in seasons where we're in a place of feeling burdened, overwhelmed, and condemned by our sin. We do. I remember back in 98, um, went to um, America for the first time, met this group called The Cross Movement, and one of the guys, John Wells Tonic, he played this song to us, and it was East Coast Christian hip-hop. Now, you have to understand, at that point in time, I mean, there wasn't much. There's, it's no secret. I, that's that's my, my preferred style of music, right? And in terms of Christian hip-hop, it was mainly West Coast um, and he played this album and it was East Coast and there was this brother on this album and his name was Corey Red. This brother was so raggo, like it was yesterday. You remember, bruv? We sit down and listen to that album right through. And he's got this lyric and he says, Lord, I pray now 1,909 times that I will never do it again. Can I get an Amen. And just that sentiment of, Lord, I come back to this place time and time and time again. Having failed you, feeling like it's just one time too many. But he who has been bathed doesn't need to bath again except his feet. 
Jesus is so wonderful. He's so faithful. He's so good. So, so meek. Jesus himself is washing feet. Jesus himself. He gets on his knees and he says, I understand. And, and, and it's me, Jesus. And I accept you. And in fact, I'm going to wash your dirty feet. Jesus is so good. There's forgiveness of sin. And you know, he says, look, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part in me. The reality is that Jesus has to wash our feet. If we're not coming to Jesus for our feet to be washed, then it questions as to whether or not we really appreciate the value and have even been bathed in the first place. Have we really been bathed? If we are not daily coming before God, repentant of sin, forsaking sin, trusting in Christ's sacrifice, then there's a question as to whether or not we've really seen God at all. You see, it's one thing to sin and to struggle. It's one thing to sin and to struggle with sin and to wrestle with sin. It's another thing to sin willfully, willingly, consistently. And so there must be that daily submission of our hearts to the Lord, bringing before him our sin. Not just saying that I'm sorry, but taking those steps necessary according to his strength and his power and his enabling, his grace at work in us to forsake sin. And it may be a struggle and it may be a trial, but that's okay. Fight hard. Resist well. Jesus, verse 12, puts on his clothes and says, do you understand what this is all about? And here we see Jesus focus the disciples on the point. What is the point? The point is, verse 20, I'm sending you out. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is sending out the disciples. We see this highlighted in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So whereas previously in verses 13 and 14, 14 he drew the analogy of, you call me teacher and Lord, you're right, 
Because I am. Notice Jesus accepts the title of Lord right there in verse 13. And if you regard me as Lord and you see what I do in washing your feet, then can you do anything else other than this? You follow this example. Don't think more of yourself than you ought to. Don't get gassed. And it's, it's, it's a struggle, especially when, especially in our society and in, in our culture and in our community, when leaders represent such aspirational figures. I've often wondered, why is it that people in those churches where they're being fleeced of their earnings, fleeced of their money, they're being rinsed, why is it that they would continue to do that? Why is it that they would go time and time again and give everything they have time and time again and not see the non-contextual false promises come to fruition? Why would they keep going? Why would... And it, and, it, and it dawned on me. Those leaders represents the aspirations of the people. And if our leader has a big car and a big house, then I'm sure to follow. So we got to make sure that our leader is set, that he's nice. Because it is from him that flows the oil of gladness. <laughs> and so people will continue to give, even once they, when they're being rinsed. Service, five offerings. I mean, I've been there. I, I've even led some of those offerings in the past. I'm ashamed now to say the aspirational nature of leadership bringing it home people don't like to see generally like to see humble leaders as a generality I know this as somebody who's endeavoring to walk in Christ likeness as a leader people often want leaders who they feel they can respect leaders who are going to command respect I'm going to tell you what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and I will step on your neck if you don't, because I'm the boss. <laughs> this was the kind of leadership that they were used to in their time. Leaders who were, <laughs> who merely treated people as send-outs. They sat down on their thrones metaphorically speaking and just sent people out to do their bidding and report back and yet Jesus here introduces a completely different paradigm of leadership true kingdom leadership is servant leadership the one with whom the buck stops the one who is willing to assume responsibility who's willing to bear the weight. And so Jesus says, look, I'm teacher, I'm Lord. 
yeah, you're right. And I've washed your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. No bossing, no lording, no old school term, boying, new school term, parring. <laughs> no. Servant leadership. Verse 15, that's the example that has been set for you to walk in. And the reality is that you will see people walking in humble servant leadership and you could get it twisted and think, they're weak. They're weak. But it's easier to be arrogant and bossy As one brother said, you try being meek for a week. It takes greater strength of character. It takes a greater sense of identity and security to walk in that meekness. And this puts context to, to Peter's refusal, refusal earlier on. No, Lord. This is beneath you. Hmm. No, Peter, this is what true leadership looks like. And so, this is the heart that's to characterize the servant. The servant who is sent out. Sent out by the Lord as the Lord was sent by the Father. Jesus says, verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I wonder if this is the inspiration behind James's quote. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. How often do we need to be reminded of that? Especially those of us who are used to the Bible teaching context. In an environment where we're used to hearing the Bible taught week to week, we can become fat, passive, Hearers of the word. Spiritually obese. Just enjoying teaching, enjoying teaching podcasts. YouTube, I enjoy teaching. And doing nothing. Now let's be encouraged because as Jesus readies the disciples and he communicates to them this attitude of, of, of servitude as being the hallmark of one of his, not just of, of one of his leaders, but of one of his. And we see this because in verse 18 he's saying, look, I'm speaking to you guys, but I'm not speaking to all of you because there's one of you who is, he's wearing a shirt, but he's not part of the team. He's here, but he's not part of this team because his heart wasn't right. We know that he had colluded with the devil as we saw in verse 2. And it's a warning to all of us because 
Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Listening to Bible teaching, Judas rode with Jesus three and a half years. I mean, how much teaching do you think he heard? And yet, at the final hour, he colluded with the devil. Listening to Bible teaching doesn't make us right with God. It also tells us that, you know, there are going to be certain people in our fellowship who we may not fully understand. I'm sure there were points where the disciples kind of had a squint eye as they looked at Judas. Uh, hmm. Hmm. It's my brother for real. We understand from the book of Mark that he was taking money from the treasury. They, they knew this. There are going to be those people that may be hard to love, people that we might take a sideways glance at. And yet, we're still to wash their feet. Jesus washed even Judas's feet. Let the Lord separate the wheat from the chaff. And so in verse 19, Jesus affirms the fact that he is the I am. I tell you this now, before it takes place, I'm predicting this is going to happen so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. The word he is not there in the original Greek. Jesus again asserting his deity. And so let me ask you, do you have the attitude of the servant king? Do you share in a humble willingness to serve God in serving others. And, you know, the reality is that there's a certain nobility in serving, especially serving in the name of one who is highly regarded. I'm sure if, in the context of this talk, I sent for the bowls and I said, look, who's going to help? Can I have some help to wash feet? We'd have many willing volunteers. But how we do in washing feet among our families? How we doing washing feet amongst our colleagues, with our spouse, with our parents, with our friends? with that boss who is the complete opposite of a servant leader, with that teacher who's racist. How are we doing washing feet in those times when there is no nobility and no honor to be gained from the act? Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says this. Speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, in fact, the lowest of all servants, being born in the likeness of men. This is our Savior. This is our King. Shall we stand? And as we stand, I just want you to kind of just reflect for a moment. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, demonstrating the servant-hearted attitude that would lead to him giving himself as a willing sacrifice, providing the true cleansing by means of his blood. And to those who receive that, there is that promise of ongoing cleansing as our feet get dirty along the way. And this is a necessity for those who would go forth and represent him. And so just take a moment to think about those things that you need to bring before him today and ask him to wash your feet. Lord, forgive us. Thank you, Lord, for your provision of ultimate cleansing. Thank you, Lord, for your provision of daily cleansing. Thank you, Lord, for humbling yourself even unto the death of the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, Forgive us for our pride and our arrogance, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for seeking the glory that is due to you alone. For not walking in humility, Lord, as we have seen in your example. Forgive us, Lord. And help us. Help us to recognize that you are the greatest and yet you served as the lowest. And that we, like you, are to make ourselves nothing. And even just to, to, to consider that, even just to hear that, grates against what so many of us have, have been taught. But Lord, apart from you, your word says in John 15, we can do nothing. So, Lord, please do forgive us 
and create in us a clean heart, Lord. Purify our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.